Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled Strategies for Optimal HIV Treatment and Prevention, Answering the Questions on Rapid ART Initiation, featuring Dr. Asold Butler and Dr. Brenda Crabtree Ramirez. Dr. Butler is the Chief Medical Officer at Crescent Care in New Orleans, Louisiana. Dr. Crabtree is an Assistant Professor in the HIV Program in the Department of Infectious Diseases at the Institute of Health in Mexico City, Mexico. For the full online educational program, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Butler and Dr. Crabtree have to say about rapid ART. Thank you so much for the kind invitation to clinical care option and for you, Jessica, for the nice presentation. I will start with the HIV continuum of care in the United States as of 2019. And as you can see, most of the people who live with HIV, 87% are estimated to be diagnosed. Of those, 81% are linked to care. Although it seems like the majority are linked to care in the first month, it only represents 66% of those who live with HIV. And then of all the people who live with HIV, 50% are retained in care. And from those who are retained in care and are on ART, most of them are with virological suppression. So it seems like one of the biggest challenge in the United States is the linkage of care and retention in care. When you see other settings like mine in Latin America, uh, our main challenge is in terms of diagnosis. As you can see, almost 20% of those who live with HIV are not aware of the HIV status, but the majority of those who are aware of them are linked to care and on treatment, and of those who are in treatment are uh, virological suppressed. However, when you see the big of those who live with HIV, only 64% are virological suppressed. So a lot of things have to be done in this regard. What are the barriers to diagnosis, with, which is the main problem in our region? Well, most of all, stigma that may be exacerbated with several contexts like race, ethnicity, sexuality, sex, class, etc. Discriminatory laws and policies, social determinants, which is really relevant in our region and many parts of the world, and lack of access to care or offers to diagnosis like in mental health services, substance use treatment, and other facilities in which are not integrated necessarily to access of HIV diagnosis. So factors that predict delayed care linkage or inconsistent while they are in care is, are those structural barriers and race and ethnicity. And once they are linked, then several things determine if they really adhere to their treatments, such as if they are substance abuse, which is for example, in, in my country, not a big issue, but it is in the United States. Mental health issues, that is something of worry after COVID even more. Co-infections, for example, 
late diagnosis, which is really prevalent in my region, poverty, uh, which has to do uh, even more important in regions like mine, stigma, as mentioned before, and a fear of medical uh, adverse events. And we know that several populations, so, such as youth and adolescent population, have difficulties of, for adherence. And uh, at the long-term treatment and fatigue, the treatment of fatigue of the treatment is something that we have to consider. And next, uh, Dr. Butler will uh, explain the rest of the slides. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Crabtree. That's that's really excellent. And you know what we have found, like Dr. Crabtree was saying, is these barriers very much interfere with retention, with virologic suppression. And we know early initiation of ART at any CD4 count, of course, is standard of care, but how quickly can we start medications? Well, we started looking at options for immediate start of ART. And this these studies initiated really in middle income and lower income countries to see if this could at all move patients' engagement and care and ability to enter into care. And so here's an example of four different studies from Uganda, from South Africa, Haiti, and Lesotho that compared standard of care, which often was delay of ART, typically by three to four weeks, um, usually involved one or two introductory visits with counseling and things of that nature, and then starting the ART later, comparing that to starting on same day. And consistently across the studies, they saw positive outcomes for those who were able to start same-day art, particularly with just getting on the ART, which makes sense, but also retention and care at 12 months, virologic uh, suppression at 12 months. Um, we saw a decrease in loss to follow-up, and we saw a decrease in death um, across all of these. And, and similar uh, statistics were found in studies that were done um, in higher-income countries as well. So based on that, now, they, all of the major guideline societies really are recommending to initiate ART as soon as possible. So you can kind of see here's a listing of them. You know, DHHS states initiate ART immediately or as soon as possible. IAS USA similarly says as soon as possible after, I, after diagnosis, ideally within seven days. Sensita says as early as possible. The European guidelines say immediate, ideally same day you know, it should at least be considered. And WHO also says rapid ART initiation should be offered to all people living with HIV. So really the data has, has shown that this does seem to be a positive outcome and guidelines and recommendations are following suit. So what do we start with is really the next question. Part of what makes this possible where it maybe wouldn't have been possible 15 or 20 years ago is that we have such excellent, robust, medications that are low in toxicity, low in side effects, low in drug interactions. Um, and therefore, that really is allowing us to have an option to start medications before we have labs. And that's really the big difference is oftentimes somebody's coming in with a positive diagnosis, you may not have any lab work on them or very minimal lab work on them. So you want something that is both effective and safe. You also want something with a high barrier to resistance uh, so you know that it will maintain effectiveness even if that patient is not necessarily going to be able to maintain adherence as well as you would love. So all of the major, you'll notice that basically across the board, it's a second generation INSTI plus an NNRTI background. Um, so you can see for DHHS, IAS, USA, Sensita, and EACS all recommend Bictegravir um, with an FTC TAF backbone or dolutegravir with an NRTI background. WHO uh, 
also just put out the Dahlia Tegravir, and I suspect that's probably due to cost. For the European and American guidelines, they also add in the possibility of a boosted Darunavir uh, with an NNRTI background. And this is really, um, again, because it is safe, it's effective, and it's robust. But also, as we'll talk about in a little bit, in the setting of individuals who maybe are on long-acting cabotegravir for PrEP and seroconvert, in that circumstance, you really are concerned about the possibility of NSD resistance. And so you'll want to use a different class of medication. So a boosted darunavir um, would be a good choice in that situation. So thinking about that, let's talk a little bit about the transition from PrEP to HIV treatment. Unfortunately, we do see that happen. PrEP obviously is there to prevent folks from developing HIV, but it does happen. Um, adherence can be difficult. And we know even with the long-acting cabotegravir, people may miss injections. And there have been some incidents of um, viral breakthrough on, on that. So you can see seroconversion on long-acting cab, though it is very rare. So in thinking through that, obviously, anytime you have somebody coming in for a rapid ART um, initiation, you'll want to get some baseline labs that would include a CD4 count, HIV, RNA, genotype. And particularly if they were on cabotegravir, you'll want to make sure there's NSTE resistance testing in there. And then you want to offer them their immediate ART. Obviously, you'll probably want other things like you know, renal function, uh, liver function, et cetera. If somebody's on PrEP, you may already have that data. Once they've started on ART, you want to make sure that they're connected with an experienced HIV provider. Maybe that's yourself. Maybe that's somebody else in your community. But know your referral sources and where you could potentially send people. And then, of course, the counseling piece remains important to talk about the HIV status, steps to prevent transmission, how to take care of their own health, what to expect living with HIV, talk about the importance of adherence and so forth, and maybe assist with identifying um, sex partners who may benefit from testing. In general, take home points from everything. So again, barriers to HIV diagnosis prevent people from getting into care. We see this, people have to get diagnosed in order to get treated. But once they've been diagnosed, those same barriers may prevent them from getting linked to care and staying on their medication. What we have found is that starting ART immediately has been shown to increase ART initiation, patient retention, viral suppression. Initially, it was shown in our low and middle income countries, but it's been shown really worldwide at this point. So therefore, international guidelines now endorse starting ART as soon as possible in any uh, HIV diagnosis, regardless of psychosocial considerations. And ARTs recommended for rapid initiation are going to be your NST and PI-based regimens with high barriers to resistance and good tolerability. And with that, I think we could start moving to our question and answer session. All right, great. Thank you to Dr. Butler and Dr. Crabtree for that excellent introduction. I'm gonna start out by asking Dr. Butler, what has been your experience to date with rapid initiation in your clinical setting? Sure. <clears throat> for us, we moved to a rapid initiation model probably around 2016 or so, 2017 maybe. And, you know, we had been previously kind of doing a more traditional model where you wait for your genotype, you do some counseling, you get a whole bevy of lab work, um, and then decide what to start and, and move forward from there. Um, so it was definitely a culture shift for our clinic to move to a model where as soon as there was a diagnosis, we immediately started. I think the game changer really has been the introduction of these very robust agents. And it's been incredibly well received by our patients. A lot of times with us, we'll do a directly observed therapy in clinics. So we'll actually watch the patient take their initial dose. And for patients who 
just have discovered their diagnosis, you know, there's a lot of emotional, and there's a lot of emotion that comes along with it. And I think that ability to take that medication and feel that they're taking control of their health right at the same moment that they're finding out this diagnosis really engages them for in care in a way that was different than how we were doing before. And I've seen excellent adherence and engagement. I will say we've also introduced adding support services uh, around really focusing on making sure people have what they need to get into care and giving some extra support to those individuals as well. Great. Thank you. Dr. Crabtree, what has been your experience so far? So my clinic is not a good example because we are a reference hospital for people that normally gets into hospitalization. We are not a testing site. So we don't, all people that are coming in are those who are, are already diagnosed. But here in Mexico City is the largest community clinic of HIV in the whole Latin America. It's ha had almost uh, 20,000 active patients and it's a testing site and it has been adopted to reduce the days of initiating ART uh, as quickly as possible. And it has reduced to uh, a week or less but not the same day because of administrative issues uh, for getting the ARTs uh, available. So it has been very positive for, in terms of that um, health providers are uh, really willing to uh, get rapid people on treatment. However, there are administrative barriers that uh, sometimes are difficult to overcome. And the other problem is that in our region and in Mexico, still late diagnosis is very prevalent. So 30 to 40% have 200 CD4 cell counts or less. And that is a big challenge for initiating uh, the same day. However, I agree with Dr. Butler in terms that if you have something serious of health and you say, okay, you have something very serious, but come in, in the following two weeks, it's a very difficult message to have to patients. So it is important that we all get the commitment to start as soon as possible, although we have advanced patients. It, it, it's really important because that engages patients and makes them feel that what they have it's serious and it's seriously taking from the health system. Thank you. Um, Dr. Butler, do you wanna take this one uh, from Michelle? So why in the US did treatment for, for a long time start after two weeks, including letting most people know their status after being tested? Sure, that's a really excellent question. So in terms of starting treatment, the main reason was most of us wanted to wait until we had a genotype. So the genotype really is that test that's going to tell us what medications might the patient have resistance to, right? So there is an issue of transmitted resistance. So just because somebody, you know, is coming in, they might have acquired their HIV from somebody who had been on medications and had some resistance mutations in their virus. So the concern was we don't want to start someone on a regimen that isn't going to work. So that was probably the thing that most significantly impacted time. Now, we also wanted other lab results as well. Previously, more of our medications were um, nephro potentially nephrotoxic, so you really needed to have a creatinine. You wanted to know their liver function, things like that. But the genotype was really the thing that caused that long delay because it's 
kind of a more complicated test, and it would take two to three weeks for that genotype to result. And most providers felt very nervous about immediately starting a medication if, you know, if one of those medications, there was a resistance against it. So that, I think, was sort of the hardest frame shift for many people to kind of move past to say, it is okay to start these particular regimens. They are so robust. You can always change the regimen once your genotype comes back if there is a resistance mutation. But that's why I say it really was the advent of these particular medications that allowed us to do this kind of thoughtfully and safely. And understanding that, yes, you can start these medications and have somebody taking those regimens while you wait for the genotype to come back. Part of it is because NC resistance doesn't, we don't tend to see as much NC resistance transmitted, though. I mean, that may change in the future. But again, these drugs are so robust that typically, even if there was some small, if there was, for instance, a, a resistance mutation to tenofovir or something like that, this regimen would get them through that three-week period waiting for the genotype, and then you could always switch them. So that's been, that was really where the big sea change came. And I think also we had for a long time an idea that people really needed to be assessed for adherence. Um, and again, maybe that was a little true when you had lower barriers to resistance, but as we have these more robust medications, it's more important to get someone started. If they aren't 100% perfectly adherent, it's better to have them on the meds and trying than to not have them on the meds at all. Yeah, I agree. And Michelle asked a follow-up too while you were talking, was someone there in that two-week window, was someone there to speak to about mental health? with and dealing with a diagnosis in that time period? You mean before rapid start? So the way, for instance, like our clinic would do it is once somebody was diagnosed, like they would be informed as soon as we know about their diagnosis, they would be immediately informed. And yes, they would do an intake visit. So they would have an extensive counseling session. They would do their blood work. They would do a lot of kind of getting connected with social services, things of that nature at their very first visit. And then they would see the provider three or four weeks later when the genotype had resulted. So yes, I don't mean to say that they were just out in the wind during this time. They were definitely being engaged in service, but they hadn't actually started medications. And what we found is we would lose a lot of people in that interim, right? So we would really lose a lot of people. They would do that intake visit, but I think there was just sort of a sense of shell shock for many people. And then they just never showed up for whatever reason to their second visit. Couple questions come in about logistics of kind of getting medications and what to start. So both Tanner and Heather asked questions about: Do you use starter packs? What medications are you starting with, and how do you get them for the patients? I'll start with mine, and then maybe uh, Dr. Crabtree can kind of speak to her experience. So for us, we you know we work in Louisiana, which is a Medicaid expansion state, which helps. Um, but even aside from that. Obviously, we have folks who are uninsured. So our clinic has done is we um, negotiated with our local Ryan White program to provide us with, yes, starter packs, basically a month's supply of medication. Um, the ones that we use are the Dolutegravir, TAF, FTC, that we keep on hand. So when a patient comes in, we can actually just hand them a month's supply in clinic and then they're going to, on the back end, be doing work with our case managers to get them enrolled in the Ryan White programming that would allow them to get the medication ongoing. And there were definitely some a lot of logistics that went into the background of that. So if you're somebody who does Ryan White, that I would strongly re recommend kind of work with your, you know, your local team to see how you might be able to do that. For our patients who have Medicaid, we have a pharmacy that's on site. Or, um, so we send the medication to that pharmacy and they're able to pick it up the same day. 
So either way, we're able to get them those same day meds. In a ca- rarely we'll have patients who would rather go to some other pharmacy to pick it up, which is also fine. And so then, yes. Yeah, so for long-term prescribing, if somebody's uninsured, we're making sure that they're that they're set up with Ryan White, and that should be available across all states. If they have insurance, um, we hook them up with, you know, if they have Medicaid, that just sort of covers the medications. And then if they have private insurance, we send in the prescriptions and then make sure they have access to any kind of copay assistance programs and things like that so that they're not having to pay out of pocket. And then uh, Dr. Crabtree, I'm not sure how y'all handle it from your end. Yeah, so it's quite different. For example, in my in my country, we we are the only country in Latin, Latin America, which as I told you before the webinar, that we have the government big purchase of, of big Tegravir as the regimen, a main regimen that could fit most of the people living with HIV for starting ARTs. That's why since 2019, we have this as the primary ART regimen that we use. And so uh, this has been a, a good experience in terms that we didn't have the problem of uh, uh, genotyping before starting because we did. We are one of the regions that do not have this resource, although we do have information about primary resistance. And we knew uh, before 2017 that resistance to NNRTI, which was our first regimen base that we used at, at those days, uh, that 10% uh, of those had resistance. So it was an urgent need of starting with uh, INSTI regimens as we do right now almost in every country in Latin America. So in particular in Mexico that we have a big Tegravir, it's really a good option in terms that we don't have to do a genotyping as before because we know that this medication will work. And there are two systems, the social security and the those from the Ministry of Health. And if someone is employed and has social security, has to go to specific uh, hospitals to get their medication. And that is has been a very important barrier, this fragmentation of the system, that it's a problem for, uh, for patients to have to go from one hospital to another or facilities to another to get their medication. But there is no reason why in both uh, uh, systems is the same regimen and that's, that's okay. But the, uh, as I said before, what we struggle is with late diagnosis and TB is something that is prevalent in our region, in our country. So as you know, Bictegravir is a regimen in which TB regimens or TB treatment cannot be given because of drug-drug interactions. So uh, when someone comes uh, and has advanced stage of disease, TB has to be ruled out in order to uh, start with Bictegravir. Although we do have some, for some specific patients, BTG as the main regimen that we can start with. Great. And kind of going along with that, Axel asks, are there any reasons that you may choose something other than kind of what your go-to rapid ART start regimen? So um, the example given is older people with HIV. You mentioned people with TB. Are there any other scenarios where you may have to go to something other than the BICT FTC TAP that is your standard? I'll say for our clinic, you know, I think the main one we have started and we actually have not run into an incident of this yet, but I'm sure it's just a matter of time. 
um, which we kind of discussed in the in the slides, which is if I have somebody who's on long-acting cabotegravir yeah. for PrEP, um, I would certainly want to start with the PI-based regimen in that case. In terms of older individuals, really no. You know, the dolutegravir and bictegravir are very well tolerated. And I suppose if somebody came in who was on hemodialysis, you know, I would kind of have to rethink around creatinine in that case, but that would probably be one of the only situations where I would consider, you know, have to kind of sit down and think through it a little bit more closely. Dr. Crabtree, I don't know if you could speak more towards it. I know you mentioned TB. No, I think that that, that will be almost it. I mean, uh, perhaps in some years back, uh, BTG with women who would desire to get pregnancy, but we know that as of today, the evidence is that this is no longer a barrier to start in BTG as the main regimen. But I, I would add nothing more yeah. as what you say. Okay, great. And then um, could you both talk about what happens after that? So after that initial visit where you start the ART, how quickly do you follow up after that? What is your monitoring after that time? Yeah. Point? Perhaps I can jump in. So what we do here, uh, I wanted to say that in our clinic and in Mexico in general, we do in most of the clinics some uh, mental health assessment because we think that this is really important, but that doesn't um, necessarily uh, stop you to not ERT, which is really important to say. And we ask uh, patients to come in uh, in the following month and so with virological, with vir viral load tests, so we can monitor if they are already undetectable. And uh, after that, it's really important to assure that they understand a U equals U, uh, this concept, and, and we reinforce every uh, clinical visit. Once they are undetectable, we uh, at four months, we uh, sometimes do some a clinical test for uh, looking into adverse events, but it's a really, normally it goes really easy when we start with, with these medications that we already discussed with. Yeah, and, and I think for us, we do a close follow-up. We, um, we will have people come in uh, at about three weeks to for repeat virals, you know, for repeat viral load, make sure suppression has occurred. Uh, and then we'll see them for a visit usually at four weeks just to discuss results, see how things are going. And especially that four week is important for those folks who, you know, we have given the, the one month supply to, to make sure whatever insurance logistics need to be worked out have been worked out. So if, for instance, they're signing up for Ryan White, we make sure that that has happened. If they're getting set up with Medicaid, we make sure that their Medicaid has become active, um, things of that nature. And, you know, in the interim, just, uh, you know, like Dr. Crabtree was saying, we try to make sure that they're set up with case management, that they've done all the paperwork to get involved in the Ryan White program, which provides a number of wraparound services. And then as part of the case management assessment, you know, they do a fairly thorough needs assessment. So addressing anything that comes up with that, and that could be behavioral health, mental health, that could be housing, that could be food insecurity, things like that. And then we try to, you know, get people out to the appropriate resources. Obviously, this sounds great. It doesn't always work <laughs> super smoothly in, in uh, practice, but that's sort of the, the process we try to follow. Um, and really making sure that we're hitting those barriers that will prevent people from coming back in. 
Great. And Axel actually clarified that the question was specific to the dose. Do you do any dose changing for renal impairment or other reasons? Well, it depends how, how bad the renal function is. And so, for example, we have a pictegravir as the first line, then it gets at some point that it's not good to give the dose that you are using. So you have to perhaps uh, you then change to DTG and adjust for in the backbone according to the renal function. But this is something that it's not, it's a rare case. It, it's not something that we, we really have to do <laughs> often. I don't know if you want to say yeah. something else. Yeah, I mean, like I say, in our clinic, because we start on the Dolutegravir um, TAF uh, FTC background, we already have it split out. The issue with the Bictegravir right. isn't so much the Bictegravir, it's that it's a single tablet. And exactly. so, yeah, so what we end up doing is, you know, under a creatinine clearance of 30, you know, you'll keep the, the Dolutegravir and then um, do the, depending on what that creatinine clearance is, you know, you can kind of go look that up per striation, if you will, um, you adjust the dosing schedule for the TAF and for the FTC. So, you know, it just means that they get, they still can continue on those medications. It just needs to be renally dosed. Right. And sometimes we can think about changing to DDG and 3GC. Mm -hmm. And that's something that can be easier sometimes. Yeah. But it depends. All right. And Andre asks, after rapid ART, when would you assess for neuropsych AEs or weight gain metabolic AEs? What is the time period and what therapy alternatives would you have in those cases? It's a good question. Yeah. So <laughs> when we used to, when we, <clears throat> we used for many years in an RTIs and a Favirens was big number one in terms of neurotoxicity. And I mean, uh, we didn't realize the, how big this problem was when uh, once we started with INSTEs, then we realized how people were struggling with, with those issues. And when there was no other options, then people could manage to live with that. But now with this other medication, it's really rare that we have to stop because of no adverse events. I don't know if you have another experience, uh, Dr. Butler, but in our, in our facility, it's really rare that we have to change because of that. And the other way, uh, weight gain, it is a public health problem in Mexico, overweight and obesity, but there is a specific population, for example, for Victegravir, that it's the regimen that we use. It's very small population, but for some reason, there's this amount of uh, population that really has this problem of overweight. It doesn't seem to be like, for example, with DTG and TAF, which has been described already in clinical trials, and it has been seen in clinical uh, studies or observational studies as well. However, it is not, there's no, not such thing as a guideline what is the best thing to do. I think this has to be discussed and case by case, but we realize that we have to be put really attention on this because it's about the public health issue in, in our countries, both Mexico and the United States. Yeah. And I will kind of echo what, what you're saying. 
I think I have had one incident of somebody who was on, I believe they were on, I can't remember if it was Big Tigervir or Dahlia Tigervir. I believe that they were on Dahlia Tigervir and had a lot of fatigue with it. And that's the only time I've seen a neuropsych mm. um, side effect mm. of any kind with a second generation INSTE. Um, mm-hmm. And in that case, we switched to a different non-INSTE regimen and he's been fine. So so that was the only time I have personally seen it. By and large, these, again, are just incredibly tolerable drugs, uh, you know, especially compared to, yes, like the bad old days of the Fabarins, um, where really you were having to kind of give people pep talks to get through the side effects and keep right. them adherent. Weight gain, though, is an issue. And certainly what I've run into it with a number of my patients, um, and obviously the data bears that out as well. What isn't totally clear is what the best options are. So at least I could say that might be a situation where maybe if you have somebody who's already morbidly obese, um, who falls into the demographic categories that seem to be disproportionately affected by this side effect, which is um, women and uh, Black women specifically, you may consider in those cases using a darunavir-based regimen as an option to avoid the INSTE. Um, though a lot of times I'll still be starting TAF, you know, kind of TAF versus TDF is a little bit trickier. So, mm-hmm. you know, that that could be an option if it's something that you're really worried about, or this is somebody who already has a lot of obesity related issues and you're very concerned. Typically I'll still just start somebody on the INSTE based regimen and sort of watch very closely with their weight. I usually counsel them extensively upfront that weight gain can be a side effect and we'll right. do some intensive lifestyle and dietary modifications to try to prevent that from happening. If I start seeing that weight climb, we sometimes, in in a few occasions, we've um, switched to different regimens. There's not a lot of data around that. Like Dr. Crabtree said, you know, I'm still waiting every time there's a new conference, I'm waiting for somebody to provide some information about switch to this regimen and the weight will get better um, and it'll be great. And that hasn't come out yet. So, you know, strategically switch, but you're kind of doing some guesswork with that. Just to add that there is a ACTG trial that it's enrolling in which mm-hmm. the question is if doravirin change in those who are uh, obese while on INSTEs is something that could change this increase of weight. And I think everybody in the clinic is waiting for those results because we don't really know what to do specifically with this kind of patients. And it's really important for uh, the population that we are seeing right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In a completely unrelated medication thing, you know, now we're, and and I don't know um, how this is looking in Mexico, but for those of you guys who are working in the U.S. are seeing the explosion in GLP-1s. So certainly for patients who've been having obesity in general, when I can get them access to a GLP-1 inhibitor, that's something that um, I've been doing because I've seen a lot of good weight loss with that. Uh, Obviously, I was already kind of using that in the setting of folks who also had diabetes. That's, well, that could be its own <laughs> full session. Well, we don't have access in mm-hmm. our system, health system. Neither we have injectables, ART. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we always uh, learn from your experience before we have <laughs> things in <on> place. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been an explosion. I can imagine. Yeah. All right. Um, Roberta asked, with relation to dolutegravir, if the mother chooses not to take it after counseling, what would be a safe alternative for 
during pregnancy? That's a good question. So it's hard because Victegravir, it's a single tablet regimen and the, the pharmacokinetics is not good enough the levels of ART while, while they're on, on pregnant uh, in, especially in the third trimester so once you realize someone is pregnant you can change it without any problem it's not that it's forbidden it's just that ev eventually won't be a good um, drug uh, or ART regimen uh, in the third trimester so we do in our guidelines, it says as an alternative should be a raltegravir, but this is harder because it, it has to be taken twice a day. And uh, people now <laughs> are not used to take medication twice a day. It's hard for them to adhere once they know that uh, one pill is available. Because the raltegravir of uh, once a day is not a, a good enough in terms of, again, from a, those are the levels that are, has to be enriched. It, 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 there's no evidence that this is a, an option in, during pregnancies. But I don't know if you have another consideration, Dr. Butler. No, I think, um, like you say, I would probably... PIs, perhaps. Was that? P PIs? PIs, yeah. And, and so, you know... I usually will just sort of follow the perinatal guidelines, but I think as long as they're being closely monitored, really any of the main agents, be it a PI, be it dalutegravir, be it bictegravir, for those first two trimesters is, is okay to start and sort of work with the patient. And like you said, there's always options to change later if you need to. Yeah, I think I think I would give her a few different options, um, go through the ups and downs regarding dosing schedules versus risk versus, you know, anything else. And like I say, at this point, dolutegravir really has been shown to be, you know, I want to just reinforce that because there was a period of time where we were concerned about neural tube defects with it, and that data really hasn't played out. So, you know, I do try to reinforce the safety of these and the importance of just being on medication for the health and safety of the mom and the and the fetus. Yeah, and also dual therapy is something that perhaps it, it's something that it's now the newest thing, but there's no really evidence of getting into dual therapy while on pregnancy. Yeah. All right. Michelle had a couple questions about longer term effects of ART and what are kind of your considerations and experience with bone mineral density loss or fat maldistribution? Yeah. I don't know if you want to go ahead. <laughs> so bone, the bone toxicity is something that has been discussed for many years. And what we have known in this last two decades is that it is um, something transitional, not progressive. It when it starts, it's it's when the bone density goes lower, uh, but then it peaks like a it it gets like a level in which it doesn't go worse. However, there are many other environmental things that can affect that, like smoking, uh, menopause, etc. Many other things that we have to pay attention. And to tell that uh, patients that ART, being on ART is the best thing for patients. As of today, there is, it's a history of success, the treatment of HIV. And other things can affect more the bone density than 
the ART itself. And the message is that being positive about the treatment is so much better for the patient than discussing or uh, being very uh, detailed on, in terms of uh, adverse events because many other things can affect that. Yeah, I think that that's 100% true. You know, I think when I'm thinking about our first-line regimens and I'm thinking about potential long-term side effects, you know, we already had talked about the weight gain with the insteads, which I think is definitely something I take into consideration on the sort of cardiovascular and orthopedic downstream effects of that. So in terms of monitoring long-term health effects, that's probably the main major one with our first-line regimens um, for ART right now. You know, bone mineral density, like Dr. Like Dr. Crabtree said, is much less of an issue, you know, with tenofovir alafenamide um, than it was with tenofovir disoproxyl, where it really did have a more profound effect on bone mineral density, and it was something we had to think about. But by using TAF-based regimens, we really don't run into that problem nearly, really at all. We, where we're seeing the bone mineral loss has more to do with, as she said, smoking, alcohol use, other kind of society, you know, social, other risk factor things that are going on around them that might be associated with HIV diagnosis, not so much the medications. And HIV itself also, of course, can cause some bone mineral loss as well. So, you know, in terms of treatment side effects and things that I feel like I need to actually monitor as we're moving forward, there's not a lot. It really is mainly the weight gain. Yeah. So I guess it's like the discussion with the back career at the old days about the uh, myocardial or cardiovascular uh, adverse events. And it was true, but I mean, there are other things that can be even more important than the ART itself. So this is very important to have this, this discussion with the patients. Yeah. And, and again, I should say none of that is necessarily a reason not to start them on those medications. Um, exactly. It's just more something to kind of have keyed into my general clinical practice with them. And I will say, oh, and for fat redistribution, luckily, we don't see nearly as much of that with these regimens at all. I don't think I've seen that with any of the newer regimens. You know, I have a few folks who were on, you know, who've been on ARTs since the late 90s, and they have uh, lipodystrophy issues, but I have not seen any new cases of lipodystrophy with any of our newer regimens. All right, great. And I saved this one for later in the discussion, but Andre asked earlier on, is there a scenario in rapid ART initiation where we might consider um, long-acting injectable agents? <laughs> so we had this discussion before starting the <laughs> webinar because we see this coming. Because it's a really important question. Although, for example, in our region, we don't have access to injectables, we realize that patients, clients are really uh, eager and are really uh, enthusiastic about getting into long acting. And we do think that, uh, I personally think that the future of treating HIV will be long acting. However, we just have one uh, option at uh, right now. and not accessible to the most of the countries affected by HIV. So in this point, we don't have this uh, evidence that rapid or same-day treatment with long-acting is feasible. And so this is the evidence, but it doesn't mean that in the future, this is going to be something that we could uh, implement. However, the evidence is not there yet. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think as it stands now, 
there will also probably have to be a number of logistics hurdles that would have to be overcome. You know, I think that through the logistics we had to go through, like I mentioned, of like coordinating with our Ryan White programs and mm-hmm. things of that nature to get a Rapid Start program kind of smoothly going initially. And it's a, definitely an extra layer of complexity with the injectables, but I couldn't agree more. I think this is just the future of HIV treatment overall, um, especially as we have more of these long acting treatments. So I'm really excited that to see the data when it comes out, uh, because I think that this could be a wonderful option for a lot of people. Yeah. And the other thing is that the adherence in long acting that we have right now, it is an important issue to consider as opposed to the other regimens that we have as tablets, as single regimen tablets, which is are more flexible in terms of adherence than the injectables. And, and perhaps this is just because this is the only options we have, and there's going to be better options in the future in terms of robustness, for example, that adherence would be more easier, I don't know, or more long acting, for example, implantables and other ways of getting medication administered are not necessarily intramuscular. So other things that to consider to have this in place is the co-infections. So that would be the challenge, for example, uh, hepatitis B or other uh, things like, for example, TB in some uh, regions. But I mean, this is a very interesting discussion. <laughs> yeah, it could be its own webinar. <laughs> right. All right. I think we have time for one last question. Axel asks, we see in a lot of cohort studies, more comorbidities in HIV populations versus HIV negative populations. Is there something to do to prevent comorbidities? What about chronic inflammation? Is there something we can implement in clinical practice? Well, that is a giant question. (laughs) But so there's a number of factors that come into play. So we know, for instance, There's an association um, uh, acquiring HIV and a number of sort of social factors that also set people up for um, cardiac diabetes, disease, issues like that. And it can be things of poor education, socioeconomic status. Um, We know that those things sort of travel together, poor access to healthcare, things of that nature. So in some ways, these illnesses all individually are markers of poor socioeconomic status or other things that that just set up risk factors for those diseases. So, you know, I'd say the main one of the main things we could do is improve access to healthcare and improve education around healthcare and things of that nature. So, yes, that that certainly could help prevent comorbidities. Chronic inflammation certainly is a really interesting area. I mean, we know HIV diagnosis is associated with higher risk for heart disease. Uh, You know, it's never really been incorporated into the algorithms we use for cardiac risk, but it is independently a cardiac risk factor. So certainly uh, inflammation and things like that could be playing a role. You know, the number one thing we say with all of that is get folks on ARV as much as possible. Even on ARV, though, we do see some of that inflammation and still see some of that increased cardiac risk. But I think it really brings up an excellent point. Very much HIV care, you know, certainly in our setting, it is a sort of a primary care, right? So we have some patients who we only see for their HIV diagnosis, and that's all we see them for. But a lot of the patients who we see in our clinic really were taking care of holistic primary care. 
Um, and so really trying to address the cardiac diabetes, you know, making sure people's blood pressures are well controlled, making, you know, talking about the importance of maintaining their other comorbid conditions so that A, their HIV is easier to control, their health is easier, they're not having lots of health problems that might also disrupt their HIV regimen. So if they're getting frequently hospitalized, if they're having difficulties because they had a stroke, you know, these are things that are going to affect adherence as well. So it's a rich interconnected web to say the least. Yeah, so and the paradox I think is that we are learning about this just because people are getting older with HIV. So mm -hmm. <laughs> we have better treatments than people survive. And so we see these things, right? And, and perhaps what you said, it's really important to get access of care which means, for example, in our region, it getting tested because late diagnosis has been related to more inflammation in the future and more non-AIDS, the, the ones who were used to uh, call non-AIDS events, which are all, all, all those cardiac, uh, diabetes, metabolic, etc. So yes, it's really important and healthy lifestyle. It's good for everyone, not only people living with HIV. It's really important for education since children that this is the best way. It's an investment for the future for everybody. Thank you very much to Dr. Butler and Dr. Crabtree. And thank you to our listeners for joining in. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day.